Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition in which we'll be asking how likely is it that the government will follow through on its threat to strip planning powers from 10 councils accused of slow decision making. We'll also be exploring what difference the London Mayor's draft revised guidance on development viability and affordable housing will make to developers and local authorities. But before we get into that, tell us about the key news stories from the past seven days. Up first, the government has promised to consult on making it easier to convert what it calls redundant agricultural buildings into homes and on changing permitted development rules to support farm diversification. The pledges were contained in a policy paper published by the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, setting out its plans for rural communities. In other news, the number of homes granted planning permission in 2022-23 was the lowest in eight years, while the number of planning applications received and decided by English councils was the lowest on record, according to the latest planning statistics published by the Leveling Up and Housing Department. Meanwhile, a new government agency that promotes walking and cycling, called Active Travel England, is now a formal consultee in the planning process, and the body expects to consider applications of up to 60% of England's annual housing consents. Next, we have news of two new council administrations pausing development plans following the local elections last month. First, Tewkesbury Council in Gloucestershire, which changed from a Conservative to a Liberal Democrat-led administration, has announced a temporary pause to plans for a 10,000-home garden town. Secondly, councillors at Spelthorne Borough Council in Surrey, which is under no overall control and led by an independent Lib Dem coalition, have voted to ask the planning inspectorate for a three-month delay to the ongoing examination of its local plan to allow newly elected members to fully understand the plan's proposals. Finally, Three Rivers Council in Hertfordshire has demanded an apology from a Tory MP following what it calls his misleading and inaccurate claims that it is considering allocating 1,100 homes on Greenbelt sites in an area of outstanding natural beauty as part of its emerging local plan. Many thanks, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Okay. So now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. Okay, best of luck. Well, here I am again in the cavern in which all new planning information gathers. I'm just wandering down to the part of the chamber where the London documents are kept to meet regular contributor Ben Coachum, who spent a large part of his career in journalism in the London section. Ben, hello. Oh, hi, Richard. Now, you've been looking at this new guidance that the, uh, or draft guidance, I should say, that the mayor has put out about assessing development viability and affordable housing. But before we get into that, the draft guidance, tell us just a little bit about the background to this document and what it's intended to replace. Well, yeah, uh, Richard, this is. uh... A bit of a techie document, more than I'm used to handling, but it's very important. It all started back in 2017. The original document came out then, and it broke new ground. 
It supports the London Plan document in telling developers and local authorities how they should go about securing uh, affordable housing as part of planning schemes. So that's that's fundamental to it. And in 2017, this document came out and it set out in quite a lot of detail how they should go about it and particularly introduced the fast track process. GLA told developers that if they did this, if they offered 35% affordable housing on their schemes as part of the planning application, they could pursue the fast track route and would not have to produce viability assessments for their schemes. And it was 35% on all schemes except those on land which was owned by local authorities where 50% was required. So if they could show that they could do that and they were prepared to do that and would enter an agreement to do that, they did not have to go down the viability assessment route. Okay. And this was very important and has been quite successful in terms of securing these contributions. And this, this guidance has been widely used, not just within London, but across the country. And it then goes on to say, well, if you go down the uh, viability assessment route, this is what you have to do. Uh, now, anyone involved in, uh, within local authorities knows that viability assessments are pretty contentious documents. Developers will give as little information as possible to pull the wool, as one person said to me, to pull the wool over the eyes of the local authorities to show that they could not come up with that 35 or 50%. One uh, council officer said to me, we just get a load of bullshit. Okay. So despite the guidance and the incentive of the fast track if you uh, for developers who do offer 35% affordable housing, there has been some concern that there is still a certain amount of impenetrability and um, and obscurity in in the material that 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 are produced by developers and and, and put forward to councils. Oh God, yes, and, and and you know, to put it in nice language, a lack of transparency. Right. Okay. Fantastic. And and, and an important point you make, I think, that this is. Um, Although this is a London document, it has been influential, and uh, it's been it's been a model for uh, approaches that have been that have been taken elsewhere. So, can you just give us? And I know this is a complex document, but can you tell us about some of the key differences between the current guidance and what's being proposed in this new draft replacement for it? Well, this new document is a refinement of the original one. Well, in fact, there are two documents, but that's a, a sideshow. So what Sadiq Khan has tried to do here, the mayor, is to really tighten things up. He's been more specific about the sort of affordable housing he wants, how it should be provided, and the information required from developers. Okay. So he's tried to tighten it up so that and force developers to be more transparent. He's been specific about wanting social rented housing. There's an awareness that the other products, as they're called, uh, the London affordable rent or various other intermediate forms of housing, shared ownership, etc., are not really affordable. So he's been quite specific here. Now, whether that will stand is an, an interesting question. Will the government challenge this and say, 
this is this this isn't government policy and we don't support it and you need to change it there have been interesting arrangements arguments between the mayor and and, and, and the government on a lot of the london plan so that's it that's an important thing he wants uh, affordable housing to be spread across the scheme not left to the end the delivery of it to be spread throughout the delivery of the scheme Absolutely. So in your section 106, you'll say, I will provide 10% in the first phase and so on up to the final phase. And there'll be reviews about how the scheme is going and what it's producing throughout its development, uh, throughout implementation to check that it really is providing. So we're seeing a much more tightened up process of ensuring that affordable housing is integrated within the development at each of its phases and each of its development phases as well, yeah. He's having a go at really tightening things up. Okay, and I was interested to see in your article that um, was published on planningresource.co.uk on on Friday, but you said that the um, what this draft guidance is saying is that social rented housing, i.e. the cheapest form of social housing, should be, and I think the quote was, the main product to satisfy the requirement for low-cost rent homes. It is going to be possible for local authorities to have other kinds of low-cost rent products, but the guidance says the main product must be social social rent. Absolutely. This is a key crux of what he's asking for, yeah. It's quite a big ask for developers. Well, I was going to ask you, what, what is it going to require developers to do that they don't currently do? They're going to have to provide the GLA or, or the local authorities, the planning authorities for each of the London authorities, with a lot more information about the, the finances of their schemes. And it's providing quite a straitjacket. So they've been very clear about all the different elements of the funding package of a scheme and, and, and its projected return to make up a viability assessment. So they are, they, they, they're requiring a lot more information in a very structured way. They're being clearer about exactly what information you need to include. But also, I thought your interesting thing in your article was that they're also quite clear about stuff you're not allowed to include. Absolutely. So there are different costs that can be included and some that can't. So, i.e., you can't build a provision in if you think there may be asbestos in the redevelopment. You can't make a provision for that at the uh, in your viability assessment. And also, you know, if you're going to get in an argument with neighbours around issues of light... That's just a risk that you have to take on, on the test. That's what the developer has to do, rather than actually at the outset in the viability assessment. Right, OK. So there's a suggestion that in the past you might have been able to say, you know, if this if this leads to a row with our neighbours about light, then really sorry, but we won't be able to provide as much affordable housing as we originally said we were going to do. And now they're saying, sorry, if you come up against that sort of problem... Well, the, the, the draft guidance, I should emphasise this as a draft, is saying if you come up to that sort of problem, then that's going to come off your return as a developer. It's not going to come off the amount of affordable housing that's provided. Exactly. So it's not going to take away from your affordable housing contribution. You've got to take it at your risk. Anything else that developers are going to have to do that they're not used to doing if this draft gets adopted? Well, yeah, there, there's some quite interesting stuff around sense checking, as it's called. So... You come up with your figures for your site, and then what the guidance is suggesting, the draft guidance is suggesting, you might actually check it. 
do the figures that you've come out with actually compare to comparable figures on other sites? So you've got to go through a new process of actually looking at other sites and saying, are they similar? Um, yeah, developers aren't too keen on doing that sort of work and they question the value of it because every site's different. But actually, you know, interesting stuff. And the other thing actually is, is they want you to look at your scheme and see whether you've actually really optimised the value on it. So have you actually got the best value that generates the maximum affordable housing? They want you to do that. So you actually look at different scenarios. If you put more more one particular kind of housing rather than another, would you actually have generated more affordable housing? So there are a couple of extra jobs that developers will be required to do as part of this process. Yeah, no, very, very interesting. And uh, this idea of looking at, as you say, these alternative use values. And I, I know that some advisors to developers are saying this This is actually quite a onerous additional requirement. Just finally, we've talked about the, the implications for developers. What about implications for councils in terms of, you know, requirements it will make of them and new things it'll ask them to do? Well, theoretically, this could make the council's jobs easier because that, there'll be fewer arguments. They're providing more certainty for developers that they developers know what to come up with. So there could be less argument, but councils will be given a lot more information that they will obviously have to scrutinise. It will hopefully be in a more structured form, but they will have to scrutinise it more. Councils use a lot of consultants to do this, and I think they probably will continue to use consultants to uh, scrutinise the viability assessments and that sort of stuff. But, you know, if there was good training in-house, they could possibly do more of it in-house if they had the skills. And yes, as you say, that, or as your article makes clear, it, this, this does provide some clear pointers for... Um, for council officers on what to check. But thank you very much for that and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, in room 106 again soon in the London section or, or elsewhere. Thank you, Richard. Yes, I look forward to it. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we were down here, I noticed a new pile of documents that appeared to have been handwritten rather forcefully with double and triple underlinings and full stops that punctured the official government notepaper. Anyway, these turned out to be letters sent to 10 councils by Housing Secretary Michael Gove, warning them they were in danger of losing planning powers due to slow decision-making. All 10 councils had failed in 2021 and 2022 to decide 70% of non-major applications within the eight-week deadline. As such, Gove warned, they could be placed in special measures, which would allow developers to submit applications straight to the planning inspectorate. However, Gove offered the 10 some hope, saying that they could escape the sanction if they showed improvement in performance by June. Anyway, I'm looking now to find that pile of letters again, because I know that if I can find them, I'll find our regular contributor, David Blackman, who I know has been studying them over the past couple of weeks. I think he may be just around this corner. Ah, oh, David. Ah, oh, hello, Richard. Great to see you, David, and great to see somebody who, who understands what this is all about. Can I start off by asking you which authorities that Gove wrote to? Well, a number. We have um, Vale of White Horse. It's basically 10 councils, eight of which, I understand, are, are districts. 
one unitary in the in the shape of Portsmouth and one national park authority. Okay, David. So I've got a list of the authorities that he wrote to here: Calderdale, Cotswold, Epsom and Yule, Guildford, Hinckley and Bosworth, Pendle, Portsmouth, Vale of Whitehorse, Waverley, and the Peak District National Park Authority. So what implications might there be for these authorities? Well, I mean, one one problem which is cited by a lot of the authorities I spoke to for this, and indeed for other people I spoke to for this, is that it's pretty poor for morale within the local planning authority that gets this kind of designation. Obviously a bit of a black mark. And it also makes it hard to plug recruitment gaps, because after all, um, all local planning authorities are suffering recruitment problems at the moment. So it's hardly a great advertisement if you've had this kind of designation. And there's also the problem that, um, of course, once you've had this designation, and if developers start bypassing the the local authority by seeking information directly off the planning inspector, of course, that can mean losing valuable application fees, which for a chunky scheme can be quite a significant revenue stream for, for the local planning authority. I mean, given especially that they're still going to have to do a lot of the work because they're still going to have to do a lot of the the, the work that goes into consultation and helping the inspectorate to prepare its application. So what implications might the warnings have for developers that are active in those areas? Well, of course, I mean, one of the major implications of getting the designation eventually would be that you would, as an applicant, you'd be able to potentially bypass the local planning authority and go for an application to the planning inspectorate. So from the point of view of the developer, what they will probably be having to think about now is whether they proceed with applications as as now to the local planning authority, as they normally would, or if they kind of um, hold fire and wait until they know whether the authority has been designated or not, in which case they then have the opportunity to go to the the planning inspector direct rather than dealing with the local authority. Yes, okay, I see. So they might think they'll have a wider range of options if if, if they hold off. Yeah, and also a lot of the work which they've already done for an application, a lot of pre-application work and so on, I mean, that can be equally valid for an, an application they put into the planning inspectorate. So in some senses, depending upon where, where you are in the process, it's, a fair, it's, it's probably a fairly cost-free option. And how likely is it that they'll be able to improve their performance by June and escape the sanction? Well, um, a lot of the authorities I spoke to or had contact with were pretty bullish about, the, um, about their prospects. They're fairly confident. They think they can they'll be able to demonstrate an improving performance over the last few months and in in the next few months. So there are things they can do, like negotiate planning performance agreements with developers, um, agree extensions and so on. So there are things you can do to kind of to improve your figures in the short term. And of course, you can do other things like bring in extras as a source, bring in contractors, so on and so forth. So you can actually sort of make it that there are things that most authorities should be able to do to, to make a dent in those figures. Okay, if they've got the resource to, to throw it at. Indeed, yes, yes, yes. And also there has been this drop in the number of applications generally Indeed. around the country, hasn't there? So Indeed, that, yes, that yes. May, um, that may help some of them as well. Uh, yeah, it, it, that, that, that probably should, yeah. I mean, certainly it'll certainly be easier to, to do below those kind of sort of you know, short-term performance, you know, juice the performance in the short term on that, on that way more than it was the case a couple of years ago, say. Okay, do you think it's a sort of done deal that they'll all um, make the improvement needed or is it more complicated than that? Well, 
probably not a done deal. I suppose a lot of it comes down to Michael Gove's sort of um, you know, the, the message that he wants to send out to, to local authorities. I mean, he now knows that there are options, that the planning inspectorate route works. So he may feel that um, there are opportunities to make an example of a few local authorities. Okay, that's interesting. He has been, or not necessarily he has been, but Secretary of States have been pretty reluctant in the past to use this facility that they've got. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Just remembering looking at your article, there were sort of, um, I mean, it's only ever been used in sort of three or four occasions, that, you know, when there have been dozens, if not hundreds of opportunities in recent years. Yes, yeah. You say that he now knows that the sort of planning inspectorate route, you know, the, the offering the developer the, the option of going down the route of applying direct to the planning inspectorate, offering them that option in, in areas that have been put in special measures. You say that's been shown to have worked. That's um, based on the experience of Uttlesford, I take it. That's right. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, we've had uh, a dozen applications determined by the planning inspectorate since this new process came in in Uttlesford. Only two of those have been rejected. And also another important factor is that the feedback from the agents of people who are working on behalf of developers is that a lot of those applications have been developed ahead of when they would expect them to be determined by planning authorities anyway. So there do seem to be a lot of advantages in going down this route. And of course, it takes it takes the local politics out of the equation, which is, of course, a major source of concern often for applicants. OK, yeah, so advantages for the applicants and not necessarily for the for the local community who uh, who don't get their opportunity to have their democratically elected members uh, have a say. Yes, indeed. Interesting point that uh, it may be that now this has become a slightly better tested route, that it, it gives um, secretaries of state a bit more comfort about the idea of putting people into special measures in that way, which they seem to have been very nervous about, about doing in the past. Absolutely, yes. David, Thank you very much indeed for that. And I'll leave you here uh, examining the documents. Look forward to seeing you in Room 106 again soon. Great. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. Great. That's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Look out for Net Zero Connect, supported by planning, on the 21st of June in Birmingham. And our thanks to producers Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening. <laughs>